Hello, and welcome to Carrie-Anne's Literature Corner. I'm your host, Carrie-Anne Dillon, and today I'd like to talk about my thoughts on adaptations in general, because last week I spoke about Naomi Novik's Uprooted, and this week's blog post is a review of one of our other books, Spinning Silver, and both books are adaptations, as are the texts that I've discussed on my other podcast, Shelf Expressions, so I thought it would be appropriate to talk about why adaptations intrigue me, what I feel they ought to do to be successful, and how the relationships between texts, such as those between an original and an adaptation, are kind of only worth as much as you bring to them in the first place. All right, first of all, in my own experience, I remember fewer of the specifics of dialogue or description of a book, then I remember the way a book made me feel. I have a great memory for song lyrics and melodies, but I really struggle with pulling out textual quotes by heart. I have a lot of friends who can just quote famous texts and passages and they read it once and can cite something from the middle, and I struggle with that. So I can, though, absolutely voice my gut response to a book title or a cover because I have such an emotional response. And what does that have to do with adaptation? To me, everything. Because I believe that the essence of an artistic work resides in the emotions it evokes in those who produce and consume it. I think that's true for film and literature and music and art, etc. But as such, it's deeply subjective and can be largely inconsistent from person to person. For readers of literature or viewers of cinematic works, I don't know, it, like, it can't be just me for whom the spirit of the piece stays with them long after the initial encounter. When people recall a book, for instance, in addition to remembering maybe the big points of what happened in the plot, people usually offer a reaction along the lines of, I did or did not like it. In so doing, they're remembering how the book made them feel, what was communicated to them, why it made them happy, sad, bored, entranced, frustrated. So the why... I think is directly related to the spirit or essence of the book. And I think the beauty of adaptation is the ability to produce something new using familiar materials. In, in keeping with that idea, I think an adapter's aim should not be to create a second version of something, but rather to infuse a new product with the set of ideas or elements from that foundational text with the essence they feel is important to communicate to other people. Of course, since emotions are largely subjective, as I said, it's hard to be sure how an audience will react to any particular element. And with intertextuality, which is the relationship between texts, such as between a source text and an adaptation, that the balance that we strike is going to land differently for viewers or readers, depending on their familiarity with any number of other elements, such as the original story, the history of the story, 
other adaptations, the current social climate, etc. So basically, intertextuality is only as valuable as one's perception and background knowledge allow it to be. If the reader or viewer is not in the know, a work should still be able to effectively communicate the spirit or essence of the content. And it's this criteria, the communication of the essence of the story, that is most important to me. The first example that comes to mind is the 2005 Pride and Prejudice movie starring Keira Knightley and Matthew McFadden. I love that movie so much. So much. And naturally, there are deviations from the language used in Austin's original text. Many plot details are glossed over. But to me, the movie got all the feelings right. I thought the casting was wonderful, and the narrative choices perfect for expressing the heart of the story. Many other viewers like the Colin Firth version for similar yet unique reasons based on their own experience of the story. But my point here is that any and every text or film has at least one person who believed in it, or else it wouldn't have been created, and it's possible to critique these works while simultaneously harboring positive or negative emotions about it. I don't mean entirely that everything should be encountered on a take-it-or-leave-it basis. I mean more that intertextuality, metatextuality, and hypertextuality, those should be treated as opportunities to discover additional depths to a work. As a side note, before we take a quick break, I think that sometimes audiences criticize something as an adaptation when it isn't one. A text might have referential connections or use similar devices, like stories can be grouped by parallels in text structure, theme, characterization, and plot without being adaptations. For example, Gothic literature carries a tradition of examining the dark sides to human nature, fascination with the death of a beautiful woman, sexual repression, the sublimation of fantasy, actually, and usually some incredible use of detail to create ambiance in a scene. But just because Jane Eyre and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde both use mirrors, doppelgangers, edifices, conflicted characters, heroes who are some combination of mysterious, prideful, ambitious, intelligent, melancholic, and brooding, doesn't make Jekyll and Hyde in any way an adaptation of Jane Eyre. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about Salman Rushdie's interpretation of adaptations and what our current literary and cinematic climate looks like. For further reading on intertextuality and hybridity and adaptation and appropriation studies, check out the works of Julie Sanders, Yvonne Griggs, Julie Kristeva, and Homi Baba. Welcome back to Carrie Ann's Literature Corner. So far, we've talked about the importance of authentic emotional connection in an adaptation, and now we'll add author Salman Rushdie's support to that idea and close with a brief commentary on adaptation and appropriation in modern media. When Salman Rushdie speaks of his ideal fluid interpretation of adaptation, 
he includes translation, migration, and metamorphosis. Translation, I think, though a dry term, is a positive one in that it suggests making one thing accessible and available to others in their own language. Migration suggests a natural order or movement of things, and metamorphosis takes that progression one step further into a profound and transformative experience. And Rushdie denounces rigidity in adaptations, and he aligns rigid attitudes with alienation, failure, and loss. And I think that is a very uh, powerful take to say that being too rigid or inflexible in your adaptation, you know, you're not going to have that authentic emotional experience and you're likely to alienate Mm -hmm. more viewers or readers than you think you might otherwise. To adapt is to share with others one's vision of the spirit of a work. I think that an adaptation can reincarnate a story and each new approach participates in reimagining, reworking, and transforming, perhaps in an effort to update, or simply to suggest another take on the familiar. And I think that a lot of the negativity surrounding adaptation stems from one person's passion for a particular version of something, which in excess can spoil the enjoyment of others. It really sucks to say, oh, I loved this version of this story and have someone jump down your throat about it's not as good as or the qualities that they did in their filming aren't as advanced and therefore your opinion sucks. That's not how the conversation really ought to go, I think. And adaptation has the potential to be a fertile meeting of minds instead of a nasty, mean-spirited battleground uh, that results in products that satisfy no one. Currently, film studios are riding a wave of reboots. Classic villains are getting adaptations of familiar events but told from their perspective, such as in Wicked and Maleficent. Stories like The Lion King and His Dark Materials are being attempted with modern technology, for good or ill. In all cases, Knowledge of the original series, or quote-unquote original movies, there's some Lion King tension there if you want to look into that, uh, the knowledge of the original is not necessary, though for some it's helpful so that they know who the main characters are and kind of what to expect, but you don't need it. I have to say, though, that the major film studio conglomerates, at least in the U.S., are not telling all of the stories that I think need to be told. I enjoy adaptations, retellings, reframings, and reimaginings of familiar stories because I like seeing how many different ways authors can oh, twist the kaleidoscope of ideas, to paraphrase that Mark Twain quote. However, does the world right now really need another The Secret Garden movie instead of a documentary about Patrick Malua? who brings water to animals in the Kenyan desert, or if real stories are too dry for you, pardon the pun, should we not be giving voice to the non-Western canon of origin stories, myths, and fairy tales? Basically, is our cultural fixation on 
and I guess our corporate profiteering from adaptations, stifling the other stories that people have to tell. Of course, putting any of these alternative stories in the hands of Hollywood at all means we may face the slippery slope of appropriation. An appropriation in this context means that a story has been changed into a new cultural product or presentation which differs from its origin, and the biggest point is that it usually does not give credit in any way to the original work. And I think that Western media has a tendency to feel entitled to tell non-white, non-Western stories with a white Western voice. And I think those tendencies have pervasive and damaging impact all across the world. By supporting diverse voices, I think our own storytelling and consumer experience will be enriched. So when it comes down to it, do you agree that in order to be effective, an adaptation must be emotionally true to the essence of the source material? And do you have mixed feelings about the dominance of white or Western voices in media today? How do you feel those things have influenced and informed your experience as a reader or a viewer or a listener? Write me a comment or send an email to Carrie-Anne at CarrieAnneDillon.com and don't forget to subscribe and share. That's it for today's Literature Corner Conversation. I'm Carrie-Anne Dillon and it's been a pleasure talking to you. See you next time.